0: Today, I'll be reading the opinion of the court in Slack Technologies LLC v. Pirani. Justice Gorsuch delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. This case concerns the meaning of one provision of the federal securities laws. For many years, lower federal courts have held that liability under Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933 attaches only when a buyer can trace the shares he has purchased to a false or misleading registration statement. Recently, the Ninth Circuit parted ways with these decisions, holding that a plaintiff may sometimes recover under Section 11, even when the shares he owns are not traceable to a defective registration statement. The question we face is which of these approaches best conforms to the statute's terms. Part 1 Together, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 form the backbone of American securities law. The first is narrower and focused primarily on the regulation of new offerings. Generally speaking, the 1933 Act requires a company to register the securities it intends to offer to the public with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC. As part of that process, a company must prepare a registration statement that includes detailed information about the firm's business and financial health, so prospective buyers may fairly assess whether to invest. The law imposes strict liability on issuing companies when their registration statements contain material misstatements or misleading omissions. The 1934 Act sweeps more broadly. Among other things, it requires publicly traded companies to provide ongoing disclosures and regulates trading on secondary markets. This law's main liability provision sweeps more broadly, too. It allows suits in connection with the purchase or sale of any security, whether registered or not. But to prevail under this provision, a plaintiff must prove that any material misleading statement or omission was made with c i.e., with intent to deceive, manipulate, or defraud. This case arises from a public offering governed by the 1933 Act. Typically, when a company goes public, it issues new shares pursuant to a registration statement. That registration statement is filed with the SEC and made available to the public. Investment banks underwrite the offering, usually by buying these new registered shares at a negotiated price and then selling them to investors at a higher price. This way, underwriters often carry the risk of loss should they fail to sell the shares at a profit. Of course, a company's early investors and employees may own pre-existing shares. Often, too, these shares are not subject to registration requirements. To prevent the stock price from falling once public trading begins, underwriters may require insiders to consent to a lockup agreement, a commitment to hold their unregistered shares for a period of time before selling them on the new public market. Initial public offerings, IPOs, are an effective way of raising capital, but they also have drawbacks. Among other things, they can involve significant transaction costs. Nor is raising capital the only reason firms might wish to go public. Some may simply wish to afford their shareholders, whether investors, employees, or others, the convenience of being able to sell their existing shares on a public exchange. Several years ago, a number of companies approached the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, about the possibility of selling shares publicly on that exchange without an IPO. Ultimately, the NYSE proposed rules to facilitate and regulate these direct listings, which the SEC approved with modifications. Slack is a technology company that offers a platform for instant messaging it conducted a direct listing on the NYSE in 2019. As part of that process, Slack filed a registration statement for a specified number of registered shares it intended to offer in its direct listing. But because Slack employed a direct listing rather than an IPO, there was no underwriter and no lockup agreement. Accordingly, holders of pre-existing unregistered shares were free to sell them to the public right away. All told, Slack’s direct listing offered for purchase 118 million registered shares and 165 million unregistered shares. Fies Pirani bought 30,000 Slack shares on the day Slack went public. He bought 220,000 additional shares over the next few months. When the stock price later dropped, Mr. Pirani filed a class-action lawsuit against Slack. In that suit, he alleged that Slack had violated Sections 11 and 12 of the 1933 Act by filing a materially misleading registration statement. Slack moved to dismiss the complaint for failure to state a claim. Sections 11 and 12, Slack argued, Authorized suit only for those who hold shares issued pursuant to a false or misleading registration statement. And this feature of the law, the company said, was dispositive in this case because Mr. Pirani had not alleged that he purchased shares traceable to the allegedly misleading registration statement. For all anyone could tell, he may have purchased unregistered shares unconnected to the registration statement and its representations about the firm's business and financial health. Of course, Slack would go on to acknowledge that the 1934 Act allows investors to recover for fraud in the sale of unregistered shares upon proof of C.E.N.T.R., but the company emphasized Mr. Pirani had not sought to sue under that law. Ultimately, The District Court denied the motion to dismiss, but certified its ruling for interlocutory appeal. The Ninth Circuit accepted the appeal, and a divided panel affirmed. In dissent, Judge Miller argued that Sections 11 and 12 of the 1933 Act require a plaintiff to plead and prove that he purchased securities registered under a materially misleading registration statement, something Mr. Pirani had not done. Judge Miller pointed out that a long line of lower court cases have interpreted Section 11 as applying only to shares purchased pursuant to a registration statement. Because the Ninth Circuit's decision created a split of authority in the Courts of Appeals about Section 11's scope, we granted certiorari. Part 2 We begin with the relevant language of Section 11A of the 1933 Act. It provides, In case any part of the registration statement, when such part became effective, contained an untrue statement of a material fact, or omitted to state a material fact required to be stated therein, or necessary to make the statements therein not misleading, any person acquiring such security, unless it is proved that, At the time of such acquisition, he knew of such untruth or omission. May either at law or in equity, in any court of competent jurisdiction, sue certain enumerated parties. The statute authorizes an individual to sue for a material misstatement or omission in a registration statement when he has acquired such security. The question we face is what this means. Does the term such security refer to a security issued pursuant to the allegedly misleading registration statement? Slack advances the first interpretation. Mr. Pirani defends the second. Immediately, we face a bit of a challenge. The word such usually refers to something that has already been described or that is implied or intelligible from the context or circumstances but there is no clear referent in Section 11a telling us what such security means. As a result, we must ascertain the state's critical referent from the context or circumstances. As it turns out, context provides several clues. For one thing, the statute imposes liability for false statements or misleading omissions in the registration statement. Not just a registration statement or any registration statement, the statute uses the definite article to reference the particular registration statement alleged to be misleading, and in this way seems to suggest the plaintiff must acquire such security under that document's terms. For another thing, the statute repeatedly uses the word such to narrow the law's focus. The statute directs us to such part of the registration statement that contains a misstatement or misleading omission. It speaks of such acquisition when a person has acquired securities pursuant to the registration statement, and it points to such untruth or omission found in the registration statement. Each time, the law trains our view on particular things or statements, all of which suggest that, when it comes to such security, the law speaks to a security registered under the particular registration statement alleged to contain a falsehood or misleading omission. Other provisions in the 1933 Act follow suit. Under Section 5, for example. Unless a registration statement is, in effect, as to a security, it is unlawful to sell such security. Here, the term, such security, clearly refers to shares subject to registration. Meanwhile, Section 6 provides that a registration statement shall be deemed effective only as to the securities specified therein, as proposed to be offered. It's an instruction that would seem hard to square with Mr. piranis broader reading of section 11a. After all, adopting that reading would give the registration statement effect, in the sense of creating liability, for securities that are not specified in the registration statement as proposed to be offered. Beyond these clues lies still another. Section 11e Caps damages against an underwriter in a Section 11 suit to the total price at which the securities underwritten by him and distributed to the public were offered to the public. This provision thus ties the maximum available recovery to the value of the registered shares alone. It's another feature that makes little sense on Mr. Pirani's account, For if Section 11A liability extended beyond registered shares, presumably available damages would, too. Collectively, these contextual clues persuade us that Slack's reading of the law is the better one, nor is anything we say here particularly novel. For while direct listings are new, the question how far Section 11A liability extends is not. More than half a century ago, Judge Friendly addressed the question in an opinion for the Second Circuit in Barnes v. Osofsky, and concluded that the narrower reading we adopt today is the more natural one. Since Barnes, every court of appeals to consider the issue has reached the same conclusion. To bring a claim under Section 11, the securities held by the plaintiff must be traceable to the particular registration statement. Alleged to be false or misleading. Until this decision, even the Ninth Circuit seemed to take the same view. Resisting this conclusion, Mr. Pirani argues that we should read the phrase such security to include not only securities traceable to a defective registration statement, we should also read the phrase to include other securities that bear some sort of minimal relationship to a defective registration statement. And, he argues, a reading like that would allow his case to proceed because, but for the existence of Slack's registration statement for the registered shares, its unregistered shares would not have been eligible for sale to the public. Beyond assuring us that the rule he proposes would save his case, however, Mr. Pirani does not offer much more. He does not explain what the limits of his rule would be how he might derive them from section 11, or how any of this can be squared with the various contextual clues we have encountered suggesting that liability runs with registered shares alone. Perhaps the closest Mr. Pirani comes to answering these questions comes when he directs us to section 5. If Congress wanted liability under Section 11A to attach only to securities issued pursuant to a particular registration statement, he observes, it could have simply borrowed similar language from Section 5. That provision, he stresses, speaks of any security with respect to which a registration statement has been filed. But even taken on its own terms, this argument does not prove much. If Mr. Perani's example shows that Congress could have written Section 11A to explain more clearly that liability attaches only to securities issued pursuant to a particular registration statement, it also shows that Congress could have written Section 11A to explain more clearly that liability attaches to any security or or any security bearing some specified relationship to a registration statement. That Congress could have been clearer, no one disputes, but none of this proves it adopted anything like the rule Mr. Pirani proposes. Finally, Mr. Pirani argues from policy and purpose. Adopting a broader reading of such security would, he says, expand liability for falsehoods and misleading omissions, and thus better accomplish the purpose of the 1933 Act. We cannot endorse this line of reasoning. This court does not presume that any result consistent with one party's account of the statute's overarching goal must be the law. Nor, for that matter, is Mr. pirani's account of the law's purpose altogether obvious. As we have seen, the 1933 Act is limited in scope. Its main liability provision imposes strict liability on issuers for material falsehoods or misleading omissions in the registration statement. Meanwhile, the 1934 Act requires ongoing disclosures for publicly traded companies and its main liability provision allows suits involving any sale of a security, but only on proof of Cienter. Given this design, it seems equally possible that Congress sought a balanced liability regime that allows a narrow class of claims to proceed on lesser proof, but requires a higher standard of proof to sustain a broader set of claims. Part 3. Naturally, Congress remains free to revise the securities laws at any time, whether to address the rise of direct listings or any other development. Our only function lies in discerning and applying the law as we find it, and because we think the better reading of the particular provision before us requires a plaintiff to plead and prove that he purchased shares traceable to the allegedly defective registration statement, we vacate the Ninth Circuit's judgment holding otherwise. Whether Mr. pirani's pleadings can satisfy Section 11A as properly construed, we leave that for the court to decide in the first instance on remand. It is so ordered. <laughs> We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.